Open your Bibles to John chapter 4 and verse 24. John 4 and verse 24. This will be the 16th message in the series on the whole counsel of God and will be continuing in the theme of the spiritual nature of God. Today we want to labor in this particular text with what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. For the past several assemblies we have thought along the line that God is a spirit and that he is not a human being or has a form such as you and I have. We've looked at the implications of this, how it relates to idolatry, how it relates to our salvation, how it relates to our sanctification or progress in, in life, and how it relates to our glorification. Now we want to deal with the latter part of this text, which is this, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. What does this mean, to worship God in spirit and in truth? This particular text is taken from the conversation or the dialogue that Jesus had with the woman of Samaria or the woman at the well. She has asked him a question. After he has pointed out her sin, the fact that she had had five husbands and was now living with a man who wasn't her husband, she replied, Well, sir, I perceive that you're somewhat of a prophet. And so rather than dealing with her sin, she thought she would divert him by asking him a doctrinal question. And that was, where was the true place to worship? There was a temple in Jerusalem, and then the Samaritans, the half-breeds, the renegades of the Jews, they had erected a temple in Mount Gerizim. And for hundreds of years there had been a debate going on, was God in Samaria or was he over here on this mountain? And she said, now our fathers worship in this mountain, and yet you worship in Jerusalem. Now which is the right place to worship? And Jesus said unto our woman, Believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you know not what, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. Now notice carefully what he has just told this woman. He said that, yes, in times past, we worship God here in the temple at Jerusalem. But the hour now is in which that all of this will cease, for the true worshipers will no longer be worshiping here in this temple, but that they shall worship the Father in the realm of the Spirit and in truth, and our Father seeketh us to worship him as this. So what he was emphasizing was that the time was coming in which that no longer could a person be able to say, God is here more than he is here. And I hope that we see this through this study this morning of really what true worship is, what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. You say, well, how should this apply to our lives? How is this pertinent to us as a church here 1,976 years later, approximately? Is this a question that's even important to us here today? And I think it is, because we come across those today who believe that somehow you can get closer to God in this circumstance than you can over here in this circumstance. And some have the idea that somehow that you can commune with God better in this location than you can in this location. 
or that somehow you can commune with God in this type of worship as opposed to this type of worship. And so this is a very pertinent question as to where is God to be worshipped and how is he to be worshipped. And we're not going to give just an own private interpretation on this matter, but we're going to go and let the Apostle Paul, the inspired Apostle, interpret what Jesus meant when he said that they that worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now let's go to the book of Philippians, chapter 3 and verse 3. And here's a text which is almost identical to the words of Christ. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3. Beginning in verse 2, we read these words, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision, or that means the circumcision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, we're going to take those words this morning and develop them as Paul gives them. He says, Beware of the circumcision, for we are the true circumcision, which we worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus, whom Jesus said, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. And John said, or records, they that worship God must not only worship him in spirit, but in what? In truth. So we're going to take the words of Paul and see what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, the first thing that Paul would attract our attention to is this. Beware of external worship by itself. He says, beware of the circumcision. Well, you say, Pastor Gables, what is the circumcision? And what does it mean when Paul says, beware of the circumcision? All right, we'll explain it in this, with this way. The religion at the time of Christ, when he came, was dominated by the scribes and the Pharisees. They had taken the revelation of God and they had turned it into strictly an external religion. They had stripped it of its spirituality and made it just a series of rituals and rites to be observed. And they had taken the kernel out, but they had left the husk, and that's all that it consisted of. And one of the main parts of the Old Testament worship was that a baby, a male child, was to be circumcised on the eighth day after it was born. And if anyone was going to be a convert to the true religion of the God of Israel, he must undergo the rite of circumcision, no matter how old he might be, if he was going to worship the God of Israel. And so these individuals that had taken and lost all significance of what the rite of circumcision meant, they just rejoiced in the external rite itself. Now I want to take you back to the book of Galatians and see why Paul warns against external worship apart from true spirituality. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 12. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised. That is, those who want to make a show so that men can see that they are spiritual, quote unquote, they will constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they suffer persecution for the cause of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. Now why did these Jews desire to have other people circumcised? So that they could glory in their flesh. That is, that they could say, we have made so many converts and we've added them to the Jewish religion. 
Jesus said that, that these particular people were so zealous that they would encompass land and sea to make just one convert, and then he would become seven times more the child of the devil. And so their religion was that they made great emphasis on the external, that they could get so many converts, and then by the number of converts that they produced, they could say, look how God is blessing us. We are the spiritual ones. And they would go by to one another, and they would ask their neighbor, well, how many people, how many converts have you made this year? And if that neighbor could say, we've influenced ten people to be circumcised, well, God is really blessing you. You say, well, Pastor, what's that got to do with us today? That's all 2,000 years ago. We don't circumcise people anymore in the religious act. No, but we have another form of legalism, another form of externals which has crept into our Baptist churches that began about 15 years ago. A group of ministers got together and they decided that the churches were not spiritual enough, so they would start some type of a competition among the churches in which that the blessings of God would be measured by how many people that were baptized in a given year's time. And so they set a goal and put this out nationwide, that we will set a goal for to have at least 50 churches who will baptize 300 converts in a given year. And so they set out to do this. And churches began doing anything and everything they could to get people into their services and then to get them baptized so that they could be in the top 50 in this particular uh, movement. And this spread throughout the churches to where today, instead of churches having fellowship with one another in and around the Lord, churches gauge one another's spirituality by the number of people they have baptized. Now, beloved, this is no different than the first century Judaism. That is, it takes the external rite of baptism and it measures a church by its spirituality by the number of people that have been baptized. It's in the realm of the external. Now Paul says, beware of the circumcision. Beware of anything which would distract from true spiritual worship. And I know that ministers gauge one another's spirituality by how many converts they have today. I know this. I've been around it 13 years now. I know that churches now gauge one another's spirituality by the number of people that they have baptized in a given year now. And so what is happening is that this message is relevant for us today here at the First Baptist Church of Osceola. Paul, if he was here today, he would give us a warning. Beware of those who make too much out of externals in worship and who would measure spirituality by external acts of worship. So the next thing that we would see in Paul's text is the creation of a true worshiper. How does God produce a worshiper? And Paul says, we are the true circumcision. Now what's he mean by that? He says, we are the true circumcision, which worship God in the realm of the Spirit. Well, we invite your attention now to the book of Colossians, and here he will explain what he means by real circumcision. And he will draw the contrast between the external physical rite and the internal act of spiritual circumcision which produces true worship. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11, in whom also ye are complete, or ye are circumcised, with the circumcision made without hands. Now, did you understand that? Here is a circumcision which was made apart from human instrumentality. 
Human hands do not touch this individual. Now let's go on. In putting off the body of the sins by the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. Now what kind of circumcision is Paul talking about when he says we are the true circumcision? He says it is a circumcision which has not been administered by human hands or external rites. But it is an internal operation by the Spirit of God which has worked upon our soulish nature which has quickened us and made us alive in Christ Jesus. The doctrine in the Bible that this is known as is regeneration or the new birth. We have been born again through the spiritual circumcision which is imparted to us by a quickening of the work of the Holy Spirit making us alive toward the things of God. You say, Pastor, why is that necessary? Because the old Adamic heart is not alive toward the things of God. It's toward the things of ourselves. And it will respond to external rituals. But it will not respond to the spiritual teachings of God. The Bible tells us the natural man receiveth not the things of God. Neither can he know them, for they are discerned spiritually. The things of God, if God is to be known, he must be known in the realm of the Spirit because that's what he is. And in order for man who has fallen into sin to know God, he must have a divine impartation of life known as the new birth, and this is brought about by what is called spiritual circumcision. It's not in the realm of the external. This circumcision no man performs, whether he be myself, Billy Graham, the priest, or whoever, the rabbi, whoever it is, because this individual cannot perform this act. Now, do you see that? I can perform baptism, which is an external act, but I cannot perform the spiritual rite of circumcision, because that is something the Holy Spirit can do and only he alone can do. So how does God create a true worshiper? And he does it through the workings of his grace, creating that person in Christ Jesus. Well, how does this come about? How does he bring this to pass? Let's turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2 now. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. Now notice here is a person who, in reference to the things of God, they are inactive. They are dead. There's no moving toward God, because God is a spirit. And when this person is inactive toward the things of God, he may be very active toward himself, his fellow man around him, he may even perform religious acts. But to really approach God in the realm of the Spirit, he is inactive, he is dead. It is in that case, in that position, that location, that we read, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. And then Paul puts in parenthesis, By grace are ye saved. Someone asked, Pastor, what is grace? Grace is that divine power which moves toward the sinner who's dead in trespasses and sins and initiates a true spiritual relationship with God. Grace is not something whereby God makes an offer and then the old Adamic nature has to wait to respond because there's nothing there to respond. 
But when that sinner is dead, God moves in spiritual circumcision, quickening them by grace you are saved and placing them in Christ Jesus, so that we read, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But note this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. When you look out, you young people in school, you study in your science class all of the different galaxies, the planets, and so forth, the sun, moon, and stars, don't you? And if you believe the Bible, you believe that God created all of those, don't you? And we call them his workmanship. He brought them into existence when they did not previously exist. They are his workmanship. The Bible says that God seeketh true worshipers. And when God would have a true worshiper, where is he going to find one? He creates one. Out of his grace, he goes to the sinner who has no desire to worship him, who is dead in trespasses and sin. He quickens that life and imparts life to them so that they are described as his workmanship. If I look over here and I see a row of people and they all claim to be the, the saved by grace and faith in Christ, then we can say that they are creative acts of God that they are his workmanship. I can point to this man and say, here is an act which God has created the same as I can point to that moon up there and say that's God's workmanship. He created it. When God desires true worshipers, he creates true worshipers through the working of the Holy Spirit applying the work of Christ on their behalf. Now then, let's look at the third thing, and that is the nature of this worship. If God quickens a person and makes them alive, gives them a new heart to enable them to worship him, what is the nature of this worship? First of all, Paul says, we rejoice and we worship God in the Spirit. The nature of true worship first flows from a renewed or a regenerated heart. You say, what's the importance of that? Simply this, and I hope it doesn't offend anyone, but if you have never been renewed that is, been made alive in Christ Jesus, all the acts of worship which you've ever performed are nil and void. They're not acceptable with God the Father. Oh, but you say, I've been circumcised. Jesus said, that's nil and void. That is, the true worshipers must approach God not in the realm of external acts, but in the realm of an internal adoration of the heart through the workings of the Holy Spirit. But you say, well, Pastor, I've been baptized, but have you been quickened to life in Christ Jesus? Well, I did this and I did this, but have you been made alive in Christ? This is the significance. This is the important thing, which worship God in the Spirit. Jesus told these Jews in John chapter 6 and verse 63, The Spirit quickeneth, but the flesh profiteth what? Nothing. The flesh in the Bible identifies with the external rites, and the spirit identifies with that internal ability which is given the sinner. Jesus said, The flesh profiteth nothing. It is the spirit which gives life. Now, how do you know whether you've been regenerated? How do you know whether you've been born again or not? 
That's a good question. I'm glad you asked so many questions like that. If you didn't ask them, I wouldn't have anything to preach on. <laughs> so thanks for asking that. Turn to Psalm chapter 147. I want to deal with this right here. How do you know whether that you have been regenerated or not? And if I ask you, do you know that you're saved, and you start pointing me to the baptismal waters or to, to, the, to the communion table or to something external, my friend, there's a great danger that you may still be resting in the external rather than in a spiritual working of the heart. So how do you know this? You say, well, Pastor, if I can't point to this, this, and this, how can I know that God has made me a new creature? In Psalm chapter 147 and verse 11, here is the acid test. Verse 11, we read these words. The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him, in those that hope in his mercy. Now remember what did Jesus say? The Lord seeketh such to worship him. And when God seeks worshipers, he produces worshipers. But when he produces a worshiper, what takes place in the heart of that worshiper? Notice first. The Lord takes pleasure in them that fear him. Now, I ask you a question. Only you can answer. Do you fear the Lord this morning? Do you have a reverent trust and holy respect for God? The, uh, the writer of Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. If you don't have any fear of God this morning, you've never been regenerated. You see that? Because regeneration produces an attitude of repentance whereby one is made to respect the person of his God. When he knows that his God has created him and he realizes that he has sinned against his creator, there is an attitude of repentance that comes from this renewed heart. So I would ask you today, every person here, how do you know whether that you've been made a spiritual worshiper or not? Do you have a holy reverent fear for God? Do you realize that he is your creator and he has a right to your life? He has a right to demand respect out of you. Now, if you kick and rebel and say, I, don't, I won't submit to that, then it means that you don't have a reverent fear for God. But there's more than just a fear. Notice the next part of the verse. The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him, in those that hope in his mercy. Not only must there be a repentance, there must be a saving faith. Not only must there be a fear of God, but there must be a hope that God has mercy. For sinners. And so if you're here today, I would ask you the question, have you ever acknowledged your sin before God and then fled to the cross for mercy? If you have, then you have been made a spiritual worshiper. Now, I didn't ask if you walked down an aisle. I said, have you ever been made to cast yourself upon God for mercy? If you have, then you've been made a spiritual worshiper of Christ Jesus. Let's suppose, and I'll illustrate this for you boys and girls here today. Uh, let's suppose that Pastor Gables was walking out through the woods, and my, he was just as happy and confident and healthy, had all types of strengths and zeal. And he was walking down the road, and he heard a noise in the bush. And he began to get a little bit scared. And he walked on a little bit further, and that noise became a little more clearer, and, and it was the sound of a lion. And all of a sudden, I look over and hear that thing comes after me. And I know that unless something happens, I don't have a chance. Fear begins to spring up within my heart. And I look over here and I see a big tree. And I look behind me and I see that lion coming. 
I look in my heart and I see fear spreading there. I know that I no longer am able to be as strong as I was. I'm about to be destroyed. Now what's going to happen? I have fear in my heart, but I see that big tree over there and I hope in that for mercy. And I take off and I flee to that tree and climb it just as fast as I can in order to escape the wrath of the beast that would destroy me. Now here's the illustration, young people, it's simply this, that as you and I walk through our existence in life, and oh, we're very happy, we're going along, we're thinking nothing's wrong with us, the sun's shining, we never stop to think about our relationship with God, and all of a sudden we hear a sound in the bushes. And that sound begins to say, you're a sinner, you've broken my law. And we walk a little bit further, and we try to shake ourselves off and say, no, that's not true, I, I really didn't hear it, I, I just thought I did. And we hear it begin to growl louder and louder, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we turn around and we see the law of God is after us. We see that we have broken the law of our God, our Creator, and now fear begins to spring up within our bosom. And we know that unless we move somewhere that we're going to be destroyed or we're going to be consumed by the justice of God. And fear begins to spread, and then all of a sudden we see a tree yonder on Calvary's brow, or on Golgotha's brow. And there on that hill, there's a cross. And we see the law behind us, and we see Christ dying on that cross and offering mercy to sinners. And we see within our hearts the fear of the wrath of God, and so that fear drives us to flee and hope in the cross for mercy. That's salvation. Now, you see that? Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever been made to come out of your own self-righteousness when you see yourself in the, under the, the guidance of the law of God and it's caused you to fear and respect him and then to turn from that fear and lay hold in the promises of the gospel? Notice that the Lord takes pleasure in them that fear him, in those that hope in his mercy. Now that's the nature of true worship. It comes from a regenerate heart. Now the second thing is that it causes a person to rejoice in Christ as the object of truth. The object of truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. They that worship me must worship me, how? In spirit and in truth. Now Paul says it causes us to rejoice in Christ as truth. I invite your attention to the 51st Psalm. How do you know whether you've been made a true worshiper or not? Look in the 51st Psalm. And beginning in verse 6, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts. Now, did you catch that? The psalmist says, God, you desire truth in the inward parts. Not just in the externals, but inwardly. Do you rejoice in Christ as the truth of your salvation this morning? Do you, when Jesus Christ is preached, and you recognize him to be the Son of God, and he is set forth as your prophet to teach you, as your priest to intercede for you, and as your king to rule over you, do you rejoice in that and say, that's truth? Or do you have some other hope? Now remember, the psalmist says that God desires truth in the inward part. Do you realize that you can stand and sing that song, Oh, how I love Jesus with the lips, and still be as far from the truth of God as the sun is from the moon? Unless there is a harmony which comes from within 
that rings with the harmony of God's truth, my friend, there's not been a spiritual circumcision take place in your life. God seeketh such to worship him, and they that worship him worship him out of a renewed heart and rejoice in the truth that's in Christ. Invite your attention now to Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 2. Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 2. And thou shalt swear the Lord liveth, how? In truth, in judgment, and in righteousness, and the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. Do you consider yourself a blessed person today? What is a blessed person, Pastor? A blessed person is someone whom God has had mercy upon. Do you consider yourself as one who has been blessed by God in Christ? Now notice, and in him shall they glory. Do you give God all the glory for what you are? How do they worship him? They worship him in truth. What is the truth? They shall bless themselves or consider themselves to have been blessed by Jesus Christ and they give him all the glory for it. Now I ask you to look around across modern Christendom today. Who gets most of the glory today? Is it not the preachers? Is it not this group and that group? Where is Jesus Christ really getting the glory that he ought to be getting today? Do you find people considering themselves blessed in Christ, or do you say with the circumciser, I must be doing something right because look at all these converts I've produced this year. God's really blessing me. And must you look to the externals to judge your relationship with the God or do you just rejoice that when Christ is presented, you say, that's my Savior, and I give him all the glory for it? Is that what goes on in your life? Is that characteristic of your relationship? Or must you have externals, forms of worship, to produce spirituality? They rejoice in Christ Jesus. Then the next thing, in closing with this, it has no confidence in the flesh. A true worshiper has no confidence in the flesh. You say, Pastor Gables, do you mean to tell me when you preach you don't have any confidence that I'm out here as a sinner, that I'm going to come to Christ on my own? <laughs> I have absolutely none. I know that apart from divine grace, you're going to go out of here today just as lost as you came in. I have no confidence in old Adam's will making a decision. You say, well, why do you preach then? The same reason that Ezekiel preached when God sent him out there to the valley where there was all dead bones everywhere. You talk about a prospective congregation. Ezekiel, go out there and preach to them. Well, Lord, they're dead. There's no life there. Surely this is not a very good place to build a Sunday school. <laughs> we better go over here on this side of the track where the, where the live people are. Why, we'll never get a church founded here. But no, God said, Ezekiel, you go on and you preach. And he said, I'm going to send my spirit and the bones are going to start coming together. And so Ezekiel's hope was not in the bones, it was not in the flesh, it was in God's spirit putting meat on the bones. And that's my hope when I preach to sinners today. I have no confidence in the flesh. But we rejoice in Christ Jesus and we worship him out of a heart which has been quickened and made alive in Christ. Now, I want to make a quick application to this particular congregation here. 
How do we know when we are worshiping God in true spirit and in truth? And we'll make this application. When we come together as an assembly and Christ is presented as the object of worship, there's something that bears witness internally that's my Lord you're talking about, preacher. I know what you're talking about. But one of the great dangers that faces churches today is for churches to become more bogged down in the external mechanics rather than in the internal adoration of Jesus Christ. You want to know how this church can truly bear witness to this community that we are a true assembly? By communing with God in true spiritual worship, by becoming something by becoming a people which love Christ and love each other rather than just doing this or doing this without the real working of the Holy Spirit. Now, as preachers today are guilty of judging one another, spirituality, by the number of converts that another preacher produces, you and I, as members of this body, can do the same thing. And let me, let me get it right down where the rubber meets the road at. Can we do that, Brother Fowl? Get it right down here, okay? Well, I think the young people's department is dead, and I don't think that the teachers really care about the young people. Now, who made that determination? Well, obviously, it's a great spiritual person because those who are working with the young people are not as spiritual as they because they determined that the, this department was dead and didn't have any life. And so they would determine that if this external was taking place, then there would be more spirituality there and God would then bless the youth department. And then there's another group which would say, well, I think if Brother Powell would just sing like this and sing like this, then God would bless our church. And I think if the preacher would just preach more like this, and, and if he'd do this and he'd do this, then we'd be a blessed people. And so what happens is that everybody sets out and they have their own criteria for what spirituality is. And they would say, if this group here would just become spiritual, then God would start blessing our church. And instead of concentrating upon Jesus Christ and our relationship with him, we're always looking over here at this group and saying, if this group would get right with the Lord, then we'd have the blessings of the Lord. And everything is measured by externals. And that keeps our attention off of what real spirituality is. If we could come together and that we could put aside my peculiar little characteristics, and we could worship God through his word, there would begin to see a great change begin to transpire in our hearts. If instead of looking at Brother Powell and saying, well, I wish he'd sing like this or he'd sing like that, forget the externals. It's not in the external. It's in the truth of what's being presented. Oh, well, if Mrs. Keeper would just play like this or if this pianist would just play like this, then everything would be changed and we'd have a real spirituality. You think it's not pertinent? That's what Paul would deal with in the time he was dealing with. Stay away from the circumcision. Stay away from the external. And get down to business with becoming what God would have you become. 
in Christ Jesus. And I'll guarantee you when that begins to happen, you'll see some evidence of it. And it won't be some artificial thing which has been pumped up by my ingenuity or by uh, Dick's ingenuity or by Mrs. Keeper's ingenuity or by your ingenuity. When we come together as a people and we really begin to mean business of getting down and giving God all of the glory for his truth and that what he has made us in Christ, that he could have left us out here like he has the drunkard, but no, he's lifted us up out of the miry rock and set us on, or out of the clay and set us on the solid rock. When we begin to give God the glory, then we'll begin to have something in common and unity in our hearts. We'll rejoice together in Christ. And when word gets out of it like that, you won't be able to keep the young people out of the youth department. You won't be able to keep people out of singing in the choir. You won't be able to, to have, uh, have to set out more chairs. They'll be here, my friends. When we get down to business and really begin to rejoice in Christ Jesus and become what we are to become, that in and of itself is the motivating factor for the word getting out. Those people have something. They have something. And you know, I have no right to expect any lost person to become interested in my Savior unless they have an absolute right to examine my life and see that I have something they don't have. And there is no obligation for any person in this community to desire to come to the First Baptist Church of Osceola unless word gets out that there are some people there that live differently than the people in the community live. And how are we going to do that? We can't just conjure up old Adam. We can't just say, all right, Pastor, I'm going to start living better today. No, we've got to cast ourselves on the mercy of God and say, God, if you don't come and tune my heart, I never will be able to sing your praises. What's the words of that song, Brother Powell? Tune, come thou fount of every blessing. Do what? The rest of it. Tune my heart to do what? To sing thy praise. Do you ever find your heart sluggish and inactive towards your duty to God? You're not going to crank up old Adam and suddenly become a zealous Christian. There's going to have to be a realization, oh God, you've got to come and make me what I ought to be. Do you worship him in spirit and truth today? Or are you, as with many others, just settle down in the realm of externals? Sing a few songs every week, listen to a few words of the preacher, and then go home considering yourself as having worshipped God? Or does God speak to you? Does he really? Does God speak to you through his truth? It makes all the difference in the world, beloved. It's not a superficial matter. It's heaven or hell. Your eternal destiny rests with this. Whether you're an external worshiper or an internal partaker of the grace that's in Christ Jesus, have you been circumcised in heart? Do you rejoice in repentance and faith? And do you have no confidence in the external abilities of the flesh? Let's stand together.